0: We are going to continue this morning in our series on the, the nature uh, of the church that we've entitled "Ecclesia," which you learned a little bit of that Greek last week. Ecclesia is the Greek word that is most commonly used throughout the New Testament in reference to the church, and we will learn a little bit more about that. Last week, we talked and asked the question about what is the church, right? And we talked about some of the many different ways that when we hear the word church, some things that we immediately think of as a building, potentially, or an event, or even uh, an organization, right? And so we uh, talked about the, the biblical picture of the church. That The church is the um, the holy, the taking the ancient apostles creed right i believe in the holy catholic church uh, the holy sanctified set apart people of God that are unified, that are undivided, that are universal is what that Catholic word means. And so we talked about who then is part of this church, right? The, the church isn't just this building or this event, it is a people. And we asked what then is the, uh, the entry point or, or what defines these people? Uh, so who is the church? We saw last week from Peter, it's those who have repented of their sins and believed on Jesus Christ and who are now following after Jesus Christ right? And so this morning, as we continue our look through the New Testament on uh, the nature of the church, we have to kind of ask about, well, what, what about this church? What about us? Why this church that God has given to the world? Membership is ingrained in, in our society, Have you had that moment um, where maybe you've been walking through a store? This happens to me regularly. Maybe I'll be going through Belk or something, and I'll be looking either for a shirt or something, some pants or something. And I look around, and I I see the signs, an additional 15% off if you will download our app, if you will sign up for our mailing list. And my thought is that if if you can give an additional 15% off, why not just give the 15% off? Why not just lower the cost all the way around? Why do I have to go to this extra step and this extra headache of downloading your app or getting onto your mailing list just to take myself off of it and unsubscribe from it when you start bombarding my email inbox with all of these unnecessary ads just so that I can get this additional 15% off right here, right now? Why do I have to constrain, in, or constrain myself and, and contain myself in this group that you are creating? Membership exists, whether it be through credit cards or it be through societies or it be through groups of individuals. We know that as people come together, they create membership guidelines or rules, something that defines who we are and who is not of us. We have a tendency, though, oftentimes, like I have a tendency to reject downloading your app or signing up for your email inbox to move towards individualism and divisiveness and and bucking these rules or, or regulations or expectations that you might place on me to receive the benefits of being a part of your group or to be identified with your group. And we see this happen with the church all the time. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had through the years of people, when we begin having the conversation about uniting with one another in church membership, questions that pop up that says, well, I believe in Jesus, I've been baptized, I'm following, I'm here, I'm present, I'm giving, I'm everything else. Why do I need to join the church? Where do you see in Scripture joining the church in membership? We see it even more so today, now post-COVID and in our technologically advanced day as we see the advent, the coming in of online church. And the question of, is online church really meet the biblical expectations and criterias of church? We tend toward that individualism, that isolationism, that uniformity. We tend towards, as Scripture tells us, a divisiveness even. And we break down into all of these different denominations, bodies, groups, subgroups, and everything else. We pull away from this unity that is expressed in Scripture, this mutual dependence that is shown in Scripture. And all of that flows from and actually ultimately results in spiritual immaturity. You see, as we live this life where we tend toward individualism and division that flows out of a spiritual immaturity and only escalates and contributes to that spiritual immaturity perpetuating in our body of believers and in our lives, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul addresses this and calls us to something greater. Look with me, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to measure to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cutting by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy, for what you have done and are doing in our lives and in our midst. Lord, you call us to a unity, a unity, Heavenly Father, that flies in the face of the world that wants to live these individualistic, self-centered lives. You call us out of that, and into a family, into a shared identity, into a shared need, to a shared purpose. You call yourself out of the world, a common people, assembled, Heavenly Father, for your glory and for the good of one another. So I thank you, Heavenly Father, for your grace and your mercy, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would grab hold of our hearts, take hold of my mind and my lips, take hold of me. And I pray that you would declare your truth in and through us today and then through us as we go into the world. Give us a deeper, greater love for one another. Give us a deeper and greater affection for our church and your church, that, Heavenly Father, we might see our need for one another, commit to gather with one another, to grow alongside one another, all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. In the face of our tendency toward individual and divi- individualism and division, Paul declares in this passage of Scripture that we as believers are united to other believers by Christ for his glory and our good. If I was going to summarize this passage of Scripture in any way, that's the sentence that I would use to summarize what Paul is saying, is that we have been, in Christ, united to one another for Christ's glory and ultimately for our good. Christ is building something. He is creating something. Just a bit of a a background, because we're picking up in the middle of Ephesians here. Paul has focused on the nature and the effects of the gospel in the first half of the book of Ephesians. And we're here at the transition in Paul's letter, where he's moving out of the who you are in Christ into the what you do in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul declares the gospel, and he says, this is who you are in Christ. In chapters 4 through 6, he says, since that is who you are in Christ. This then is how you must live as those who are in Christ. And so in verse 1 here, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Specifically in these verses, Paul is telling us that we are to walk in unity. Paul knows and assumes, he's talked in the first three chapters about the, t- the tendency toward division specifically division upon racial and cultural lines as he sees the division in the church between Jew and Gentile. And Paul declares that something greater has come in Jesus Christ. And he says that Christ has torn down that wall of division and instead has created a one new body. And so Paul is urging us to reject that tendency toward division and isolationism, uniformity, and spiritual immaturity. And instead he urges us to be humble to be gentle, to be patient with one another. We're to be eager, verse 3, to maintain our unity. In that, Paul assumes that we are united to one another. And in these verses, we can see some things that tie us, unite us together in Jesus Christ. First, we see in verses 4 through 6 that we are united to other believers with a common identity. We're united to other believers with a common identity. That identity is who we are now in Christ. Chapters 1 through 3, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it is that Jesus Christ has done. In verses 4 through 6, Paul emphasizes repeatedly one word. That word is the word one. There is one body, one spirit, One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In a world that is broken by sin, the tendency is to divide, to break down into groups and subgroups that meet my personal preferences and my wants, that look like me, that think like me, that vote like me. We all tend to move towards our little silos and echo chambers. But Paul says Jesus Christ has done something infinitely greater. He has counteracted our sin and he is calling us out of our tendencies toward individualism. And he's instead drawing us together in a new identity. He is pulling men and women from every tribe and every nation and every tongue across the world throughout space and throughout time. And granting them this new identity once they believe on Christ for the forgiveness of their sins And are then adopted into the family of God such that they receive a new name. If we are in Christ, having confessed our sins, repented of them, and turned from ourselves and trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we are then beyond just forgiven. That's great. right? The gospel of Jesus Christ says that because of what Jesus did on the cross, I have been forgiven of my sins. Because Christ was raised from the dead, when I believe in that, then I, am, I then receive an everlasting life. But the crowning jewel of, of the gospel is not merely my forgiveness. It's not merely my eternal life. It's the fact that I, who was once an enemy of God, am now adopted as a child of God. As was said earlier, it's not just that God puts up with us, right? It's that God loves us. God likes us. God wants us. God has adopted us. He has treated us as children and continues to treat us as children. And that is what Christ has accomplished on the cross. In believing in him, we are adopted into this people, this eternal people, this family of God. And this new identity is shared by every believer in Jesus Christ. And that new identity in Christ now trumps every other thing that I would use to classify myself, such that there is no male or female, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no power structure, there is nothing in this world that is more important as an identifier to who I am than my Christianity, such that it changes everything. And that becomes the new marker of who I am, and that then is what I look to to resonate with in other human beings, regardless of whether they look like me, they like the same things that I like. If there is Christ in them and Christ in me, that is all that matters. And Christ is uniting us together in this new people. And this is where many of us want to stop. This is where many individuals want to stop. This universal church that we have looked at at the last couple of weeks. Isn't it enough that I am saved and I am in Christ? Do I really need this local body of Christians? And the answer is yes. It's Paul's answer here, and it's the answer not only through the rest of the New Testament, but throughout the Bible. See, Paul's expectation that we strive to maintain the unity implies that we're together. Not just in identity and, and this ethereal kind of way. The universal church has the tendency to just be this, this vague thing that is out there. But Paul here assumes that if there's a possibility of division, it means that we're close enough to one another that we aren't getting along. It means that we are gathered together in more than just this spirit and in identity, but we are gathered together in proximity and relationships. So when we talk about the issue of church membership and being united with one another in a covenant relationship, if you're looking through Scripture for a thus saith the Lord, you shall be a member of a local church, you're not going to find one. It's just not there. And it's not there explicitly because it's there Implicitly at every single stage, on every single page, it is assumed that those who share a common identity come together and assemble for the purpose of being the body of Christ on earth. They assemble themselves into a definable, functional body of believers. I don't have time to explain away all of the ways that this is implied in Scripture, but just a few. In the Old Testament, for example, the people of God, this family of Abraham, this family of Israel becomes a nation with borders, rulers, laws, practices, and it was commanded that multiple times a year, all of the men assemble in Jerusalem in the presence of the Lord. And so there's there's this regular practice of identifying the children of God, the people of God, and them coming together. In the New Testament, as we've said, and we've entitled this series, Ekklesia, Ekklesia is a combination of two Greek words, kaleo, klecia, those that are called, ek is out of, those who are called out of the world. As Peter puts it, those called out of spiritual darkness and into his light. But it's used in a different way sometimes throughout this New Testament and throughout the Greek culture at that time. Those that are called out are those who are called out for a purpose, And so it's often translated, that word is often translated assembly. It would have been the equivalent of the elders in a community, the assembled legislative body. They would have been drawn together and come together for the purpose of making decisions for their town, for their community, for their family. They are called out, called together to assemble for a reason. And it was the practice of the New Testament church that they assembled regularly. Specifically, they assembled weekly on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. Take, for instance, every single letter of the New Testament as another example of the assumption that the people of God gathered together in definable bodies in the name of Christ. Every, almost every New Testament letter that is written is written to a definable body of believers. The only real exceptions are the pastoral epistles and some of the ones that are directed to specific individuals. But Peter even, in his letter, talks about churches that are scattered throughout the world. One specific example is in the book of Colossians, Paul mentions at least three different churches. The church at Colossae, the church at Laodicea, which is apparently just down the road, and they're supposed to interact with one another and share Paul's letter between each other. And even in Colossians, he talks about greet those who are, who, the church that meets in the house of this woman named Nympha, which it seems to imply that that church that meets in Nympha's house is either a subsection of the Colossian church or a separate entity altogether. But there are these definable groups of believers throughout scripture. Paul insinuates in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, as he's giving instruction to the church on the taking of the Lord's Supper, he says, when you gather together as the church. That's really shocking for many of us, especially when we love to misquote and misuse Jesus' words in Matthew 18 that says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. And though that is true, the fact of the matter is, if we, are in, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then Jesus is with us wherever we are as individuals. But Paul makes this distinction, he will, that there's a difference between a couple of Christians sitting down for a cup of coffee or even a Bible study and those who are gathered together as the church. Think about it this way. Captain America is an Avenger. The Hulk is an Avenger. Iron Man is an Avenger. Wherever they are, even as they have their own unique storylines throughout the Marvel comic universe, they each are still, nevertheless, share this identity as Avengers. But when Captain America comes to a point where there is a threat that faces the world and he cries out, Avengers, assemble... There's a distinct difference between individual Avengers scattered and those Avengers who come together for the purpose of being this collective body to do something that no individual could do on their own. In the same way of a sports team. right? Ryan Tannehill is a Titan. Derrick Henry is a Titan. All of the rest of the players are Titans. But when they put their uniform on and step onto the field, they are Titans in a different sense than when they are scattered around throughout the city. And that's true of the church of Jesus Christ as well. We are Christians, each and every one of us individually, who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus. But there's a difference when we assemble for the specific purpose of being the church. We are called to assemble in such a way regularly. And we are called to do that and given authority when we do that in both Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Those are the first two instances of the use of the word church in the New Testament. In Matthew 16, Jesus approaches the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? And it's at that point that Peter declares, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, you are right. This has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And he gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. He repeats it again in Matthew 18 when he's talking about specifically the purpose of church discipline where there is an individual who is unrepentant of their sin and they refuse to repent of their sin when they are confronted by an individual believer. They are refuse to repent of their sin when they're confronted by a couple of believers who come into their presence. And then Jesus says, if they will not listen to two or three of you who are confronting them in their sin, take them before the church And the church collectively, not the pastors, not a Sunday school teacher, not the deacon board, not a church council, the church then has the authority to set them apart into the world and they are to be treated as you would a tax collector or a sinner. To evangelize them that they might believe. Jesus says, I give the keys of the kingdom to the church. And so when the church of Christ is gathered as the body of Christ in this world, and they speak, they speak with the authority of Christ. To define the what of the gospel, you are the Christ, is what he says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, but then also the who of the gospel in Matthew 18 is we have a responsibility to guard the purity collectively, to guard the purity of the body and hold one another accountable. And this isn't held by any group, as I said, in the body, but with all of the body. And this, and there's so much more, creates the foundation of our model of church government that is congregationalism. We're not a top-down organization. As I said, the pastors don't get to make those unilateral calls. But as a church, the church collectively is given the authority by Jesus Christ as the assembled body of Jesus Christ to speak for Christ. At the very most basic level of the question of who is the ultimate earthly human authority in the church, we would say, I would say, Baptists would say, that the Bible teaches it's the congregation, the assembled body of believers. But it's more than that. It's bigger than that. You see, because we're not just united in a common identity, we are also united, verses 7 through 10, in a common need. Paul says in verse seven, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He goes on later in verse ten or verse eleven. He talks about some of those gifts that he has been, that he has given to the church, and they're not necessarily skills so much as they are people: apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. What well, we see throughout the New Testament, and this is why this, pa- this sermon has been so difficult, i bounced back and forth between some possible passages of Scripture that we can show this interconnectedness, usefulness, and need of one another in the body. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about gifts that have been given. He talks about the body of believers being an interdependent, mutually dependent group of individuals. In those passages of Scripture, he talks about the body needing fingers and toes and ears. And every single believer has a specific role and a purpose and are fitted onto the body of Christ in a certain way. In such a way that the eye doesn't have the ability to say to the ear, I don't need you. And the the mouth doesn't have the ability to say to the big toe, I don't need you. But instead, we are all part of this body that Christ has given to us and that nevertheless, we are each and every one unique. Christ has given to us grace. That is not just the grace of the gospel there in verse 7, but specifically he's talking about the grace of gifts that Christ has given to every single one of us. We are each and every one unique, which means that we each and every one bring a certain value to the collective body of believers. The truth of the matter is we need you. This church needs every individual present and accounted for and participating. If the ear decides to shut off one day, then the body is hindered and the function is hindered. If My arm decided to not wake up this morning and it was just a dead limp thing. My functionality would be hindered throughout the day. And so where and when we are not together alongside of one another, we're missing a part of the body. We are dependent upon one another. And so if we are at home or we're anywhere else and around and about, the, the, the need for us to be together with one another is essential because together we then function, we see as the body is meant to function. But beyond just the body needing individuals, we need the body. It was said multiple times, one of our core values at Spring Creek Baptist Church is that we gather because we're not meant to live this life alone. God created us out of relationships for relationships. There were some of you that were questioning whether or not I should stand and share this particular testimony this morning, but the truth of the matter is there's someone potentially in this room who needed to hear that. And you and I are needed in the body, and we need the body. There's that old illustration that pastors have used for decades about the pastor who went to um, a church member's house who had isolated himself from the body. He hadn't been attending for weeks on weeks. And he knew that this, this guy was questioning whether or not it was really important for him to be among other believers. But the pastor didn't say anything. He just walked in the room. It was a cold night. The guy had a, a fire on the, uh, in the hearth. And so the pastor sat across from him. And he took the, the tool and he reached into the fire. And he pulled one of those logs, those embers, out of the fire. And pulled it off over to the side, away from the rest of the wood. And they sat there and they watched that as that that little ember started burning down and down and down until it had no no heat left in it and it just snuffed out and it was at that point that this this church member said pastor I get it because an isolated christian is someone who is in danger the bible tells us that we have an enemy and that enemy is like a prowling lion lions don't go after the herd they go after the stray the weak and the wounded, to pick them off one by one. There's a power and there's strength that comes when we are together. When we are united with ears and eyes and toes in this beautiful way, because the truth of the matter is we are not self-sufficient. We need one another. And God has created the church to be this various, unique, beautiful body of interdependent beings. Because God is not Simply a farmer. God is a gardener. A farmer takes a field and he plants the entire field full of wheat or full of corn or full of, full of soybeans. And it might look beautiful in all of its neat little rows and everything else, but it's all uniform. God is a gardener, not simply a farmer. And he recognized the beauty of fruit trees and flowers and tomato plants, and string beans, and squash, and tomatoes. When you walk through a garden that is well-kept, the variety might be overwhelming at first, but ultimately when you step back, it is beautiful. And God is calling us as a body of believers to be a body that is various with many different gifts that come together for the glory of the Lord and also for our good because we need one another. It's not okay for us to be alone, but ultimately, even beyond that, when we recognize our need for one another, it's not just that identity and it's not just that need that unite us. There's something even greater than our shared identity and our shared need. It's a shared purpose. Our identity in Christ, our need for one another, Coming together, assembled and overseen by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we then become this body that Paul begins talking about in verses 11 through 16 that mutually loves on one another, educates one another, edifies one another, builds one another up. What is the purpose of these Offices that he has given in verse 11 the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The reason that God has given pastors and teachers, the reason that God has given these offices to the church is not to do the ministry of the church. He's given me to you, He's given officers to the church to equip you for the work of the ministry. In a very real sense, a call into vocational ministry, as you see it, is actually a step away from real ministry and into a place of being the coach on the sideline who's calling you into the game, who's equipping you and training you and teaching you and preparing you and sending you onto the field. I'm not so much the captain of the team running things as much as I am the coach on the sideline cheering you on, training you up. And God and the Holy Spirit are the general managers running everything from the booth. I am not the minister of Spring Creek Baptist Church. You are. And when we understand the definition of true biblical congregationalism, we see that it is not just this question of who is the ultimate earthly authority on, in the church, It's the collective body of believers. It's also who bears the ultimate earthly responsibility for ministry, and it's the individual believers. And God designed it in this way intentionally. Because think about what happens. The less and less and less involved the church members are in real ministry and in big decisions, do you really ever have to grow up at all? The more that we isolate decision-making and the more that we isolate Christian ministry into a few paid professional Christians, guess what we end up with? A lazy church that's riding on the coattails of somebody else's spirituality. But when we recognize that God designed the church in such a way that every single Christian bears a responsibility and an authority, then everybody has to grow up together. You, as a collective body of believers, Paul actually scolds the Galatian church. We'll talk about the relationship of pastor to congregation next week. But he actually scolds the congregation because they're listening to, entertaining false teachers. It's not the pastor's fault at that point. It's the collective body of believers. Because, again, the keys part of giving the keys of the kingdom to the church is to guard the what of the gospel. And when you allow false teaching to be proclaimed from this platform... It's not just on me, it's on you as well. And you have an authority and a responsibility to call me out on it so that we can grow up together. We're to equip, the, these leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This isn't a list of responsibilities that Paul gives to these individuals, if you look here in verse 12. Right? He's given these four offices to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith. There's a way in Greek and in language to note, note this is a list of things that these offices are supposed to do. Right? These pastors are responsible for training the believers and equipping and building up the, bringing about the unity of the church. That's not how Paul builds this. It's the role and the responsibility of these officers to equip the body— and then on top of the body, he builds the responsibility for the next stage, which is or the work of the ministry, the work of the ministry among the believers that are equipped by those that are the officers. They collectively, their ministry builds up the body. The building up of the body ultimately results in the unity and the maturity of the entire body of believers, And so when we see this notion of what we are to do, we are all, each and every one, ministers of the gospel. Think about what we learned from Brother Danny a few weeks ago as Peter was talking about the church. It is a a holy temple of living stones. It is a royal priesthood. It is a family of God. You are a priest believers who have a responsibility and a privilege and an authority given by God as the church of God to grow up, to hold one another accountable, to pour into one another. The reason that we gather is not just so that we can have a fun time worshiping the Lord and get this warm and emotional fuzzy to go out the door. The reason that we gather is to build one another up, to encourage one another, to equip one another, to minister to one another. When we think about Christian ministry, Christian ministry is not the things that we do. In the sense of This church service isn't ministry. A community picnic isn't ministry. VBS isn't ministry. Christian ministry is serving one another. Ministry is not program oriented, it's people oriented. We have to become ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who regularly gather because we need each other and we gather under our common identity in Jesus Christ for the purpose of maturing alongside of one another, of serving one another, of encouraging one another. When we neglect this, and we give way to our tendency to revert to individualism, isolationism, so on and so forth. We might think that that's okay. But if I had a pitcher of water here, and I were to pour it out on this table, that water would splatter and it would go anywhere. And it would get something wet, which is you know, effective. But it ultimately means nothing. It's this nebulous kind of formless something. The universal church is significant and it's powerful and it means something. But at that nebulous level of the, all the people of God across all nations and tongues of all time is still this nebulous formless something that really ultimately has very little impact on our individual lives. But if I were to take that same pitcher of water and instead of just pouring it out onto the table, I were to pour it into a hose, a funnel that led into a hose and that hose was able to move. And as it moved further from me, it got narrower and narrower. Guess what would happen to that water? That water as it was given shape and it was given structure and it was even allowed to constrict at a certain point, the tinier that that hole gets on the other end of that, that funnel, I don't have the ability merely to just get something wet. I have the ability to blast paint off of a wall. And when we come to the notion that the universal church takes its most powerful form in a congregated body of believers gathered in their identity in Christ, gathered because of their need for one another, gathered because of their mutual ministry towards one another to build one another up, that is where the point where the church is powerful. That is where the church takes form, that is where the church becomes a testimony. That's where the rubber meets the road, and we are urged then by Paul to be eager to maintain our unity. There's power in the church. and That power comes when we gather together, because we're in the name of Christ, with a need for one another, for the purpose of growing up together in Christ. So my question is for you, where are you at in relationship to the church? Have you allowed your connection to the body of believers to grow stale or cold? Are you still in that place where you you are, you know what, I'm here and I participate and I'm this, but I've never really thought about being united to this church in some way that I'm accountable to them and they're accountable to me. The Bible assumes that all believers are connected to other believers in a meaningful way. I would love to have a conversation with you about church membership, what that looks like and what that entails. Maybe you're here this morning, and the thing that you need to recognize is that that tendency to say, you know what, I'm going to pull away. I'm going to pull away. My life is too difficult. My life is too burdened. My life is too whatever else. I just don't have time for church. That's exactly the time that you need to come. That's exactly the time that you need to join. That's exactly the time that you need to gather with others. How is it that you need to move closer to Christ and in a deeper relationship with those who bear your family name?